This is the Urban Political, the podcast on urban theory, research, and activism. Hello, and welcome to this new episode on war, everyday life, and activism in Saint Petersburg. And I'm very pleased to introduce you to our guest, Oleg Pachenkov. Oleg is a researcher who has been working a lot with activists in St. Petersburg and is now living in Berlin and working at the Georg Simmel Center of the Humboldt University. He has been involved previously with the Center for Independent Social Research as a research director in urban studies and until last year he was a researcher and consultant at the Center for Urbanism and Participation at the European University in St. Petersburg. So in the following, we shall speak about both um, his academic insights into urban studies in Russia, as well as some personal accounts and experiences with urban life and activism there. So, um, Oleg, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your relationship with St. Petersburg. I already introduced you with your academic affiliation. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about what that entailed, your work with um, activists and uh, uh, civic associations and uh, what other kinds of professional involvements you've been um, engaged in in St. Petersburg. And maybe then also what has brought you to, Ber to Berlin. Well, yeah, St. Petersburg is the city I've been living in since uh, childhood. Uh, and uh, I've been, yeah, graduated there and I've been working at the Center for Independent Social Research, which sounds uh, academic, but in fact, it is an NGO. It's, it's not like a state-owned or a big uh, research institute. It's a small, not private, but yeah, kind of private, non-for-profit research institute. Uh, which was very, very typical, uh, f kind of representing a particular uh, type of organizations that emerged in in Russia after the collapse of Soviet Union, when the, the big academic institutions were like totally, you know, state-owned and, and state-run and uh, developing partic particular agenda also in the, in the science, in social science. And the Center for Independent Social Research emerged as with the aim to develop a, an alternative agenda. And there were several of such centers related to universities or independent to, from universities as, like ours. So yeah, we have been working a lot on the qualitative sociology, so to say. And uh, yeah, well, I, since the beginning, I didn't work a lot with migration, with urban studies, I, I was rather working with migration studies. Uh, but then, actually, I came to Berlin in 2006 and uh, fall in love with the city and really focused on the urban studies uh, here. Uh, and the city became an object of my research. So that the first uh, city I studied as, as urban uh, studies research was Berlin, actually. And then I came to St. Petersburg back with lots of ideas uh, about what what urban studies can look like, because they, they basically did not exist in, in Russia by that time. Uh, it was 2006, uh, 2007. And then also I came with a lot of ideas of uh, educational or edutainment programs, uh, because uh, I was very much excited by the way that the citizens involved 
in in urban activities in Berlin. So I was kind of dreaming about the same to happen in in the city that I loved, my city of St. Petersburg. So me and and my uh, colleague, we initiated uh, first like a non-academic educational program introducing uh, interested uh, citizens of St. Petersburg into urban issues. How you can think of the city, how you can act in the city. Uh, so it was, uh, yeah, in collaboration with one art uh, space. <clears throat> we did just a series of lectures during two years, like two, two times a month, with various uh, speakers and many speakers we actually brought from Berlin or, or from other uh, European countries and cities. So, so this is how my, my involvement in uh, urban issues started. So I was, yeah, you see, since the beginning, I was not just a researcher, uh, but also a kind of a person trying to, yeah, to be involved in some, uh, let's say, civic activities, though I never called myself an activist. I worked with a lot with activists, but I think my research background or academic background kind of uh, stopped me from calling myself an activist or even being an activist, because I think that the difference is that activists are those who know the truth, who know what, what has, hap has to happen. And the academics are people that are rather asking questions and are never sure. So I was helping to those who were sure. When I thought that what they are sure about, I, I agree with, kind of. Yeah, so, and of course, I mean, you, you know that urban studies agenda is very much influenced by the leftist intellectual thought. So, of course, it was, in, in, yeah, for this reason, uh, working with the activists, uh, it was always, yeah, quite kind of obvious. Uh, yeah, but then uh, what, uh, what happened, uh, yeah, since, since the war started, I mean, the, the situation that is more known in the world outside of Russia is, is the aggression of Russia against the Ukraine. So kind of the geopolitical part of the story. But there is also another part of the story of what's going on within the country. And so the, the, the war is kind of the situation of the war affected a lot, the, the situation within the country. And the main effect is is the the growth of authoritarianism of the this this I mean the, the, the Russia before was often called a hybrid regime combining the authoritarian features uh, or qualities with uh, democratic institutions or or like typical yeah for democracies institutions or representative democracy but also. The institutions of direct democracy, of deliberative democracy, all, all coexisting with uh, quite authoritarian uh, things. But since the, the start of the war, the, the, the democratic, uh, not, not institutions themselves, but activity uh, was kind of uh, cleaned, cleaned up. It was closed. Uh, it was, mm, well, not not openly forbidden often, but uh, repressed or suppressed. And uh, uh, as a reaction, many people left the country because they just couldn't perform their activities. Uh, so this, uh, the situation of repression and fear uh, characterized uh, yeah, the, the inner Russian uh, situation in the last year. So 
I was among those who left the country in the in the spring of the, the last year when I mean we have been looking for the situation, the development of the situation for a few weeks and we saw what, what was happening in those few weeks and we just decided that we I mean I say we because there are like dozens of, of people, my colleagues and, and friends. So we, we shared that, we, we talked a lot, we shared that experience and uh, the feeling was that we could not continue doing what we were doing because we would go or saying what we, we wanted to say about the situation because we would go, got arrested or go to prison as some of our colleagues or friends did. So, I mean, staying inside the country and keeping silence was impossible, was terrible feeling of, of self-censorship. So we didn't want to experience it. And uh, yeah, and going to prison was also not a, a good option. So we decided to leave the country and to, yeah, to be open to, to think as the way we, we, we wanted, to talk the way we, we felt like, and also perhaps to reconsider our activities as citizens, as professionals, because of course it was a very strong feeling of... Uh, if not uh, uh, a, a guilt, but at least of responsibility. So as, as you know, active people, both as researchers, for example, as uh, people from academia and working people who have been working a lot with activism. So we were kind of, we believe that we were making our input in, in the building up civil society and public sphere. Uh, in Russia, but so when when all these things happened, and we've seen that the, the public sphere has been demolished within two weeks, uh, we said, well, uh, something perhaps we did something wrong, or we didn't do what we had to, or we ignored some things. Well, like people said, or we said to ourselves, look, it's impossible that it happened within two weeks. Yeah, so we were kind of ignoring things that were happening during the last maybe five or even 10 years, kind of ignoring, trying to do our own things. And that was also a mistake perhaps. So we needed a distance yeah, to, to, to make a reflection on, on what we have been doing. So that, that was basically the reason to go out of, of Russia. So I came to Berlin because that was the city where I worked before and had colleagues and, and contacts. Could you tell me a little bit more about um, the kind of obstacles that you encountered, the kind of res like official or authoritarian resistance to the, the work you were doing in those first weeks after the war. So how, how, like, how did you feel it? How, how did it become recognizable? Well, there was a, a wide range of things from from the everyday life when you got uh, when you got uh, these terrible signs, the Z letter, uh, which became a symbol of the invasion of Russia into Ukraine, uh, and uh, it appeared all of a sudden everywhere like posters, because I mean, the, like a social ads that is uh, controlled by the, the city government. So they, they sell it uh, to the, the business as ad spaces, but instead of selling it in, in, this, in the last spring, they just occupied them all themselves. 
with all this uh, state propaganda of, of that symbols and all the slogans uh, referring to the war and combining the, the this actual uh, invasion of Russia into Ukraine, uh, this aggression of Russia with the, the brave uh, history and memory of the Second World War, where Russian Russian or Soviet Union soldiers were liber like liberators, yeah, in, in a sense. So it was a total, yeah, like mess up of, of the meanings and senses and, and the faking up. So that was like at the daily lives, it was really, I mean, you didn't want, people didn't want to go out of the flats to the streets because they just didn't want to see these this signs of militarization. And uh, <clears throat> also there were like conflicts between people and like uh, supporters of the war and, and those who were against. So there were clashes and then conflicts all around. Uh, there was very bad feeling too, but there were also very, you know, very strong direct and political things like, uh, well, several colleagues were, were fired in universities. They, they were fired because they didn't sign the petitions the, because there were two, well, there were many actually, but, uh, in the academic world, for example, there were famous like two tries uh, of, of uh, signing petitions. One was the official one uh, started by the, the Minister of Education and it was supposed to be signed by rectors of all universities. And uh, rectors, of course, had to, sign, to push and force uh, their employees to sign it. Uh, so the, all the heads of departments and all this kind of... Uh, uh, the, these people had to, to sign and they were supposed to force their, their employees like and colleagues, just, you know, professors working the universities to sign it. So it was supposed to become a massive, of course, but there was at the same time a parallel. It, it was not massive. It was, there were like hundreds of people signing it. And it, it's important to understand that, the, um, well, in, in Russia, university is not, it, it's not a tradition of the free academia that, that you have in in, uh, in in Europe, in Russia, university is a state institute. The rector of the, the university is not elected. The rector of the university is assigned by the Minister of Education. So he's a bureaucrat, basically. He's a representative of authoritarian uh, executive power working for the ministry. So he either fires himself, leaves the position, or does what, what the ministry says. So it's, it's not the decision of universities to sign at the, the level of rectors, but at the level of, of heads of departments and kind of like lower levels, of course, that's a personal decision. But people did not understand what, what the, the consequences if they, sign, if they don't sign this official petition. So many did sign just because they didn't want to lose their position. Uh, some did not sign and they lost their position. They were really kicked out. Uh, either from the position, so some colleagues, like close colleagues, friends of mine in St. Petersburg and Moscow universities, they didn't sign and they were, and they, they of course, they didn't deliver signs of their colleagues from their departments, for example, the heads of departments. So they were punished and they lost their position uh, as heads of departments, became like ordinary professor or, or, or docent, like lecturer, or, or some, uh, some were actually fired from the university. And uh, there was also a scandal, like uh, accused of the financial crime 
in in one of the biggest Moscow universities against the the people uh, who we all knew as representatives of the of the like uh, liberative uh, liberal uh, science in like this liberal and Western oriented, let's say, wing uh, in the academia. So they were accused for financial crime and one, one like the, the, the leading person was actually arrested. And uh, the other were, became like, uh, what, what's the English word for? Uh, they, they had to come uh, to the police and, and uh, report about their like involvement in, in this activity of, of this leading person. So mainly left the country even even before it, it happened just before this, the war. So it was a part of the same move of, of the repression. Uh, it started actually before the war, but with the war it, it, it became critical. So especially with the signing petitions. So people suffered if they didn't sign and also suffered those who signed the alternative petition. There was a bottom-up initiative to sign petitions of academics against the war. It was much more uh, numerous, actually, the, the people who signed it. Uh, and, and they also were punished. So many of them were punished. It was a decision of the rector each time, in each particular case. Some rectors were more harsh, some were more relaxed. But there were consequences. And just the, the last but not least example from my experience, we worked with a group of activists who were trying to to make a park on the, on the just the, uh, the empty land, the Brachland in, in St. Petersburg. Uh, so it was. We, we have been working together for a couple of years, trying to to make uh, a land, uh, transform uh, a land into a park uh, with the government, with the citizens, did events. So among uh, yeah, there were many like festival events uh, to attract attention to the place. But as the war started, two of the activists from this group they just made an anti-war event there at this uh, space so they were immediately arrested both of them and uh, we i was writing and signing for example a letter a so so-called so letter of reference or a recommendation letter because uh, the lawyers said that it could be a reason for uh for the court to make a decision to let these people uh, stay at home like at home, I don't know the, the proper legal words, but the, instead of, of staying, uh, like waiting for the court decision in the prison, basically, uh, they can stay at home, like a home arrest. Mm -hmm. So uh, to be released from the prison at least. And we, we did this letter, so we signed that letters and it helped. So uh, at, at both of them were released and, and stayed at home for the waiting for the decision of the court but and one of them she she just left the country this is the next day immediately uh, she went to georgia and the guy stayed uh for some reason i don't know why and finally the the guy got uh, i think uh, like 10 years of in prison he's they are kind of well almost teenagers well they are 20 something years old and they they made this anti-war protest and uh, now, well, yeah, she she left, and he's in prison for for fifteen years. Wow! So this is just an example of what happened. And yes, there are some other examples of our close colleagues, activists, got arrested, and then another one spent, uh, yeah, I think almost a year in in, in prison. And then finally, I mean, the, the lawyers were trying coming to the court. It, it was just 
you know, all this happens before the real like court decision for being guilty and, and uh, got, you know, this or that number of years in prison. So all this time before the court decision, which can can be lasting for, for months now, and, and we see these cases. So the guys stay in, in prison all this time. So another example of, of, of a colleague and a friend was that uh, the lawyer was like uh, constantly pushing and bringing in more and more asks and, and you know signatures and reasons to the court to release the guy and to keep him arrested at home not in the prison and finally she succeed and he was released and of course he left the country the next day too somehow nobody knows and nobody explains how it happens but we know that there are NGOs uh, working for like illegal evacuation of people under danger outside of Russian boundaries. Uh, yeah, so this this kind of thing happening, and uh, so you really can feel that you're in, in in absolutely real, not an abstract danger. And the the most terrible thing, I guess, is the. It's a gray zone. It's kind of it's unclear for what you can be detained or sent to a prison for or not, for which word, for which gesture, uh, in in your social network. Yeah, if you use the word war, yes, many there were many many cases. Yeah, when people just use the word war in in their uh, like posts in in Facebook or or similar. Uh, social networks they they got fined uh, with saying that the if they do that next time they go to prison all all these kind of things they really make your life terrible because you don't understand what you can say what you can't and it's very it's a situation of like uh, yeah, you're nervous all the time because mm. you you don't know what to do what what you, how to behave yeah yeah thank you oleg for that um Yeah, for that description, that um, that very vivid um, description, we we shall talk about um, the current situation in Saint Petersburg as you experienced it in, on your last visit in in April in, in a moment. Um, I'd like to ask you now a little bit about urban studies as it has been institutionalized uh, in Russia. You said. Um, in 2006 when you came back to uh, to St. Petersburg there was virtually no such uh, framework for for studies uh, fr framework of research um, that was then that you then also helped develop in 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 Russia so for our listeners more familiar with the anglo-saxon version of urban studies how how would you describe the urban studies uh, as you had as you have experienced them um, or been part of in in Russia um, what 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 kind of trends questions and approaches predominate um, how is it has it changed uh, over the the last couple of years and particularly now over the last year with the war Well, it, uh, like to describe the entire picture would be difficult because country is huge yeah, and uh, you know, it's also spread. Yeah, so we have uh, like uh, 
big cities uh, across the country and in each big city you have uh, several universities you still have universities in smaller cities so it's like it's it's very wide uh, spread and uh, in well in actually the anglo-saxon uh, ironically exactly angla Saxon tradition uh, influenced urban studies in Russia because one of the first departments of urban studies was established in the independent uh, high school in, in Moscow. Uh, it, it, it was uh, also like NGO in private kind of private slash NGO university in Moscow where they made, uh, it's called Shaninka after the name of, of the rector and establisher of it, Theodor Shanin who is a British scholar, actually, uh, of Russian origin. Uh, and uh, he established this high school in, in Moscow, and, and they made a, a program in urban studies together with uh, the Manchester University. And it was one of the first, uh, these, these kind of programs. And then, it's an interesting thing. Actually, I would say that the urban studies as a field uh, has not been very much developed in Russia. There were several, several also local kind of traditions in schools, in, in, in uh, Ural or Siberian uh, universities, but, but not that many. Uh, in, but the trend, like the trend setters, were always Moscow to a lesser degree, St. Petersburg, mainly Moscow, because in Moscow there were three big uh, like uh, hubs of, of uh, education related to um, to the urban issues but I would say that only one of them was properly urban studies in a way that in a, in a meaning that it has in, in the, the like Western or uh, scientific vocabulary it, it was this program at Shanyanka. Uh, School because there was also a program, uh, even a department called Higher School of Urbanism or Urbanistic, in a, in a bigger one of the biggest universities of Russia, which is Higher School of Economics. So within that, it was kind of an, a department called High School of Urbanistic, and uh, but it was uh, more uh, run by uh, by urban planners or or geographers then so and very much connected to the state uh, government so they were kind of training people in the governance uh, of urban governance let's say rather than urban studies and the third big hub uh, and the big actor was the private school like properly private school uh, of urban design and urbanism strelka so-called and it was established by by business people in a close collaboration with uh, architects and Ram Kolchas was one of the first uh, like advisors and and teachers at, uh, in this school and and this school was uh, also cr created you know very much focused actually on uh on uh, urban planning and architecture applied so it was science but applied science in the beginning and also Strelka Institute had uh, a very strong department called uh, like Bureau uh, Strelka, which was basically doing things here. It was not educational part, but uh, doing urban planning and architecture. Uh, so it characterized a lot the situation with urbanism in, in Russia, 
because it was always very little of research and and uh, intellectual debate around it. There was some, but I would say very little. And uh, even actually many people who were interested in urban studies and were doing kind of urban studies, uh, making research, uh, publishing, uh, getting their PhDs in, in this field, many of them actually left the country and continued their, their work in, in European or American universities. And within Russia, there were very, very few examples of like urban studies, like proper urban studies. There were some examples in the, in the further uh, universities uh, in Ural or Siberia or Far East, uh, where urban research was very closely connected to the, the historical department, for example. Uh, or the, so they rather or ethnography. So they worked somewhere somewhere at the, the kind of interdisciplinary edge of urban studies and history, urban studies and ethnography, uh, or yeah, th this kind of things. Or for example, migration studies somehow where it already existed before a strong school of migration studies, like in Irkutsk, uh, they kind of added uh, urban dimension to their research. But the, the overall, like the, the trend was formulated for the entire country was formulated, I would say, in Moscow. And in Moscow, as I just described, it was always very much applied oriented science. And uh, I think it determined the, the situation in, in the field, in this field in, in Russia overall. So it's very little of science, actually, and much of applied activity much of a lot of applied work several programs uh training people not uh studying yeah the cities not in studying the cities but in even in studying if in studying then applied studies for planning and architecture so since the emergence uh yeah the the urban study field immediately was kind of split and some parts of it developed more than the others. So I would say academic part developed the least. Applied part uh, connected to the, the governance uh, developed much more. Another part uh, related to applied urban planning and, and architecture for the city, uh, for the state, or for private developers developed these two sides, yeah, kind of parts of the field developed much more. And this is uh, the situation uh, still. And since the beginning of the war, uh, let's say in those two, two developed parts, little, little things happened, basically nothing. Because ironically, uh, well, life continued. The city still existed. Yeah, uh, the, the, the departments, the ministries, the departments of the city government responsible for city governance they, they nothing happened to them they, they still exist somebody has to govern the cities yeah something somebody has to plan their the cities somebody has to sign the the you know papers for continuing construction and doing architecture so in in this field not not many things uh, changed in the applied like planning architecture work with the developers the same yeah i mean developers still continue working they had some financial troubles but uh, business can always you know 
solve the, the, the troubles. So they are solving and architects still are in need. Yes, yeah, so there is a construction. They continue building buildings. So why, why not to, yeah, to work with them? So these two fields are continuing. So I, I, I didn't uh, mention actually the fourth part, yeah, which is, uh, which is urban studies uh, connected to the, the civil society and the urban activism. So apart from three I mentioned, this was a fourth one also existing and developing. And this one, I think, suffered the most, well, as well as academia, too. So in academia, it was never easy to, to, to do research on the like, critical things in, in urban studies. So to, to do works to defend your PhD thesis in the field of like abstract theory of urban studies or or social theory related to urban issues was fine uh, or something in urban governance was also fine but like critical thinking was was difficult or i mean you could do that but you, you could even publish there there was no censorship basically but there was censorship at the level of defending your PhD thesis, for example. So there it was not that easy. And to be like openly critical, even though from the academic point of view or philosophical point of view, uh, would, be, would be difficult. So, well, again, be critical against neoliberalism was possible. Be critical against the, the, the liberalism or, or authoritarianism in a particular country at the level of defending your thesis was was not uh, well I mean you would be recommended by your supervisor not to include those those uh, theses in your like final uh, thesis yeah like these ideas yeah, openly because it can cause troubles and nobody wants troubles at the defense of of PhD thesis, so th this kind of situation. But but there was no censorship. You could you could publish in journals, basically everything, and then people did. Uh, mm, yeah. But uh, since the war started, we we talked to the colleagues who stayed in the country, and they said, look, uh, it was not like the open censorship again. It's like the gray zone I mentioned in the everyday life. The same in academia. People did not understand what topic they could work on and which topic they couldn't. And it was somehow connected to the situation in the activism. Uh, in the first months uh, since the war started, last spring and summer, it looked like that the activism and the, the activist energy of those who didn't leave the country, uh, they said, well, we, we still feel like we can act. Uh, we probably cannot act in the in the fields or topics which are considered to be political uh, by the state, by the government. But we could do, for example, in the ecological issues. And there was kind of a boom of the, the ecological and heritage protection activism in last summer. Uh, so uh, people felt that they could not go open to the, like, to the streets to protest against the war. But they could go to uh, protest against the demolition of the historical building for a while. The same with ecological issues. They could go and protest against, uh, you know, cutting off the trees or making another like huge dump next to the city or these kind of things. Uh, they and people did, and for a while nothing happened. So the the police or like all the the violent machine was more focused on preventing the political protests. 
But then, uh, as it as it became clear that there would be no political protests anymore, as because of the the vi- cruel violence against the the participants, then uh, like uh, slightly the the violent machine turned towards any other uh, kind of uh, protests or like civic uh, open public civic movements. And interestingly, uh, it became the situation with these like ideological uh control uh and and repression it was used by the by the business because what stayed usually what stays behind the the demolition of cultural heritage buildings or making another uh, harm to the the environmental issues what stays behind that usually is business interest of developers or or some other business doing i don't know some uh, some things in the environmental field. So the business started using or abusing the situation with the, with the, the, the violent machine ready to operate, to, to kind of express its violence against the protesters. The business started using the situation, a kind of reporting on the activists, uh, really like writing reports or like, or calling to police saying, look, uh, this is an activist in cultural heritage protection, for example, famous person organizing lots of like events and protests, trying to save building from demolitions. Developers hate him. So developers just checked his web, web, uh, Facebook web uh, page and said, and called it the police and, and said, look what he's publishing on his web page, uh, Facebook page. This is, uh, this is, I mean, you really can, can take this text and send him to prison for 15 years with a new law because there were like two new laws published exactly you know aiming at uh, people who use you know these particular language formulations uh, the the anti-war rhetorics so to say so that was anti-war rhetorics on his web page Facebook page so uh, he was immediately arrested and they talked to him and released him so he was just fined for the first time but then they also told that if it happens next time, uh, you can go to prison for a few years. Uh, so it was just, a, you know, a try to to uh, to use the the current situation against the activists in in different fields. And the same, like bad things happened to the protests in the the ecological activists. So that people just went out to the streets to protest against some uh, ecological issues, and then then the police came and behaves uh, behaved against them violently as uh, exactly in the same way as as did against the political protesters because they don't make a difference yeah they see people on the streets protesting they just do what they do what they're trained for so like slightly it, it people realized within russia that actually no no public or open protest is is now possible because it will be immediately treated uh, as partly political or anyway i mean now that this this violent machine is behaving as it does so without making differences so i think this enthusiasm about the opportunities to transform your activist activities to another fields and urban issues looked like kind of neutral field but but not not anymore mm. and uh on the other hand, activists themselves, I mean, if they're responsible and, and, you know, thinking smart people as they are, 
they they cannot ignore the fact and just pretend there is nothing happening there's no war let's continue business as usual let's you know think of you know making uh, urban environment comfortable activists don't do that the the people working for the state does that architects do that many uh, urban planners do so there is a the big program for example of the state run program that like from the highest level curated by the ministry of of construction uh, the program of uh, participatory planning and design of urban public spaces so every year the state uh, the, the federal government gives lots of money to the small towns in russia to fix their public spaces and the procedure of, of of like planning and design is supposed to be done in according to the participatory planning uh, mechanisms and and with tools of participatory planning and it's uh, it's still going on it was not restricted people are called to come so you cannot go to protest on the streets or in the park but you are welcome to come to the the office of the architect to plan this park together with citizens so it's like a total like nonsense and and uh, collapse and clash in terms of uh, like ideological and, and uh, issues and values staying behind it but but not for everyone for many architects and people even involved in this like moderating these participatory planning sessions for design of public spaces they continue doing that and they say uh, why not i mean cities are here citizens are there people still you know stay there they walk they need parks to go out and the, the environment better be comfortable than the non-comfortable because people don't deserve yeah, the bad urban environment why should we stop doing what we have been doing and there is no connection yeah to the well people say to the war but you know okay perhaps to the war no connection uh, but i mean in your professional activity as a citizen you still cannot ignore it should not but as a professional you still cannot ignore the fact that of, of the repressions so what what for you you design your public spaces it's public spaces for public life but what is public life then if 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 you cannot go and, and express your opinion publicly and you, you'll get arrested so but this kind of things people just do not connect often mm -hmm. some do and they're in trouble or they leave the country or they stop doing and now kind of took a pause and and, and uh, trying to rethink actually how their professional activity can look like in this new situation mm -hmm. what they should do what they shouldn't do in these new uh, conditions so that's now a big uh, question mark for for a big part of of uh, professional community in, in urban issues let's say not only studies yeah, studies you also can continue you're not sure you can publish it for sure not in in uh, foreign journals that's another part of the story yeah the strange politics of sanctions against russian scholars who are not allowed to publish now in in uh, english-speaking journals are not allowed to you know to not invited into research projects anymore so that, that this is absolutely strange uh, things and i guess that it's against the values of academia basically uh yeah so even uh, russian scholars continue their research the english-speaking audience will not know anything about that because if they publish they only can publish within russia and if there will be censorship 
then some topics will just disappear because it could be possible to publish it outside of the country in English journal, uh, but not in Russia, in Russian language. But now with the sanctions, they cannot publish it at all. So I think the sanctions will actually affect the, the, the urban studies, the critical urban studies, because there will, will be no space for critical urban studies results of this research to become publicly accessible. How is that, uh, how are these sanctions from um, international journals, how are they formulate, formulated or how they are articulated? Is it like a straight refusal to publish from scholars who are still at Russian universities? It sounds like there could be no collaboration in any way with people affiliated with Russian institutions, uh, any sort of institutions. First of all, universities, because they're state institutions. But for example, university where I work, it's European University, uh, which is a private university, again, uh, NGO. Uh, so it's not state university. It, it, it has always been in, you know, in troubles with the state, actually. It has been closed a couple of times by the state. But still, it's a Russian institution. So it goes under this requirement of no collaboration with Russian institutions. So if I, uh, if I only had my affiliation in the European University of St. Petersburg, I could not be published in, in any uh, journal in Europe or, or the States. Uh, so the colleagues who, who stay and have affiliation in Russia cannot publish, cannot be part of the research projects. The, the research projects were frozen or closed Uh, several projects that, that I was a part of, for example, they just the, the funding has been frozen. So no money can go to people, scholars affiliated with Russian institutions. So only those who, who, are, who have affiliation in, in uh, institutions outside of Russia, they can have access to the, the world academic public uh, stage. So like me, because I work here in Berlin. But uh, yeah, so that's tricky. It, it can, it perhaps will change because the the, the level of European Union actually that's a European requirement. Uh, so th there are some negotiations now going on at the European Commission level because for scholars, it's quite obvious that these sanctions is an insane, and they they actually contradict to the academic values, obviously and openly. Because academia should come over the, the political national boundaries and polit over political agenda and, or geopolitical agenda imposed to it. Yeah, so the, the solidarity of academics is supposed to be about the support yeah, of people who suffer the, the repression in authoritarian regimes, not the opposite. So I think this, uh, these debates are now going on and, and hopefully the situation will change. But I think uh, the problem is you have to apply some, uh, you have to be very selectional then. Yeah, so it's much easier to just ban all, yeah, mm -hmm. without any details, just all. To let things happen, you have to go into details and, yeah, I don't know, check which petition, which of two petitions this academic actually signed. Though there are people who signed both. <laughs> I know that, but very few. Uh, but it's still, I mean, for those who have been living under authoritarian regimes, it's quite obvious. I mean, one, you sign, uh, like, sincerely 
the other one you sign because you don't want to be fired because if you are fired you lose your job you lose your like salary you, you lose everything you lose your professional track basically uh, so I mean it can be understood yeah in a way but there are many scientists who didn't sign this this like pro war petition and they signed and their name are visible and they signed the anti-war petition why why do you ban those people that's strange what happened to the um, to your colleagues at the um, center for Uh, independent uh, social research as well as the European University, particularly in the Center for Urbanism and Participation. So how many of those stayed or are still in, in, in St. Petersburg and how many of those have left the country? Well, my feeling is that from my like professional circle, both academic and activists, uh, my feeling is that 80% have left the country. Because, uh, yeah, well, in our center, it was not big. There were just, um, well, four people working. Yeah, it's now one stays in Russia, the, the director of the center. So he, he takes care of the, of the business, so to say. Uh, and, uh, yeah, other centers, I, I also know they lost most of their employees uh, and uh, in Center for Independent Social Research, I think uh, maybe uh, more, yeah, also 80%. So I came in, in this April, so one year after the war started, I came and I, to, to the Center for Independent Social Research and there were like, I don't know, maybe 10 people or maybe five people because there were also guests some colleagues coming from other institutions. So yeah, most of most of people uh, left. Uh, all I think all those who had established relations, uh, international relations with colleagues outside of Russia, uh, they left uh, because they they speak English, they have established relations, they have colleagues who welcome them, and this should be actually recognized and and stressed. That at the personal level, I, I think no, none of us have ex experienced anything related to the sanctions or something like that. So at the personal level, all foreign colleagues helped us. And then they found money, short-term scholarships, long-term scholarships, uh, any sort of support that helped us to, to come and stay now for a year, perhaps for a longer time, in, in European or American or Canadian uh universities so uh yeah for those who had established relations they, they left still many people stayed especially those who feel responsibility uh who who had uh administrative positions like heads of departments for example or some other like units Uh, because if they leave, then the entire team just lose the, the leader and then disappears. So they kind of feel responsibility for their colleagues. And, and that's why they stay in key positions to, to continue doing things. Well, they also, of course, we all share the, the belief that there should be some, you know, science, like critical science still developing 
within the country because if all scholars leave then what you get there, there will be no academia anymore there should be public and civic uh, activity going on because if there will be just nothing and then like 100 percent of this field just you know cleaned up and taken by the authoritarian states then there will be no chances for any uh, restoration of, of normal society even after the end of the regime, which we all hope for. But when it happens, there, there will be a need for alternative institutions to be developed. But to develop something, you should have it. It's much more difficult to develop from the scratch, from nothing. Even the Soviet Union, at the, the moment of collapse Soviet Union, there were, if not institutions, then at least initiatives, groups, personalities, who became uh, a background and, and a kind of a key person uh for the development of of democracy after after that totalitarianism so the same will be needed now yeah for for the time when the the putin's regime collapses so we we all believe that this kind of work and activity is needed and for my feeling maybe 90 percent of those 80 percent who left let's say they all are looking back to russia and thinking of coming back to Russia as, as soon as possible, as as soon as as they can afford it. Uh, and uh, when, what it means, it differs from a person to person. So for, I mean, like the expectations uh, or conditions that they would uh, consider uh, kind of enough for them to come back differ from one person to another. So some say, uh, just the stop of the war, uh, perhaps, is is enough, or stop of the war and stop of the like hard repressions that, that are taking place now. Uh, some say no, we only come after Putin is gone. No way, we're gonna work under this regime. So it it, it differs, but but all people, most most of people, really think that they they need to work to act to change their society, the Russian society that they have been working for and investing so much of intellect, energy and everything, and scholars and activists. So they actually want to, to come and do some good for, for Russia. How do you keep track of the developments in St. Petersburg and beyond in, in Russia? Um, how, do you, how do you get a sense of urban life and the situation there well the overall feeling was uh, I think well it was mixed feeling I think the society is split very much now uh, openly split and into like two big parts so to say one part is is those who who don't care who either believe that the war Russia is is doing is a good thing because I mean who believe to propaganda, and propaganda is saying that Russia is liberating uh, Ukraine from fascists, or and and many people believe in that, and uh, so they either don't care about the war, support the war, but supporters I think are much fewer. Most of people just say, well, we are here, the war is there, perhaps. There is some right thing staying behind this invasion, 
because Ukrainians did bad things against Russian-speaking population, and we are protecting those people. So there was some good, there is definitely some wrong and bad things about the war, like any war, killing people is no good, uh, destroying uh, the cities is no good, but uh, they, they share this formula, Russia w- was forced to do it. Uh, so they say, okay, we don't care. We just live our lives and it's possible to continue living your life. You, if you, uh, if you just work, you know, I know at some manual work or in the office or in a business, you just uh, continue doing your job. And then you, after, after work, you go to buy food and go home and watch uh, films on on Netflix. Uh, Well, Netflix is not accessible anymore. That's the problem. So you cannot buy uh, the, you can go to McDonald's. You cannot watch Netflix. Uh, so there are some troubles. Yeah, you cannot buy some brands uh, like uh, clothes. But but otherwise, yeah, you can eat different food. You can eat Russian burgers, uh, drink Russian beer or lemonades instead of Coke, and watch not Netflix, but uh, I don't know some other. Well, people still find a way to to get access to to Western films and uh, entertain themselves in pretty much the same way as they did before. And uh, yeah, so this is normal life. And it, we, we were kind of, when we came, we were just really shocked because for us, the life is not normal. It, it's not like, uh, yeah, for us, the, the, the time kind of particular history of, of, of everything, of our lives, of the country life, uh, the history of the country, of the world, has changed drastically in the February of the last year. But for many people, it just didn't. And that was a shock. And uh, the other uh, impression was uh, like those who care about what's going on but could not leave the country for personal reason or or financial reason or other reasons, uh, they just, they are very much depressed because of, well, this is obvious feeling. This is... This is the the feeling that we didn't want to experience and, and left. That's why we left the country, because you cannot act, uh, you cannot think, you cannot talk, in a, in a way you you wish. Not not at all. Uh, I mean, in principle, you can if you don't touch the political issues uh, or the war issues, which you which is difficult if you are a reflexive thinking person. So, well, this uh, this feeling of self-censorship, as, as I already mentioned, is a terrible feeling. It's really a psychological, if not psychiatric, feeling. It's like somebody is living or kind of invading in your brains, in your mind, in your psychic, and, and behaving instead of you. It, it's a terrible feeling. And, and people still feel it. Or they just closed from the rest of the world. Uh, the difference with the situation uh, a year ago when the war just started, uh, well, the, the, the similarity is the silence. As, uh, it's, it's a very important uh, feeling and uh, action or the non-action of, of talking. The silence is one of the, of the dominant category, I would say, in the Russian society now. Uh, in in the this is it's still there. So this similarity, yeah. For one year, it didn't change much, but the difference is that in when a year ago the silence was caused by the situation that you didn't understand to whom 
to talk without uh, taking a risk of provoking a conflict or even getting arrested because there were cases that people just reported on the neighbors or the neighboring table in the bar where the people, the guys are discussing the anti-war uh, position then the the people from the, the next table just call to police to say that they are like betrayers arrest them so this kind of thing uh, they, they are happening but now people understand better who, who whose position is what they know among the, the the friends relatives colleagues who supports the war who doesn't support the war so uh, they don't talk about their opinion about the war the political situation to those who they know don't share the position so in this is kind of now this is institutionalized split of society and uh, so keep silence with those who don't share your position or you talk about different things like daily life routine uh, nothing more and with a very few people with who you you you, you share your you can share your opinion you you can talk about that but anyway it's all you know these talks are, are depressive in this in a way because what what can you talk you can just complain you can criticize but but you don't see any space for any productive action that that uh, can change the situation people do not see how they they themselves can make an input in changing the situation apart from what the activists do uh, is I think they all now invest all the efforts and energy in keeping the networks uh, and keeping yeah the uh, the mutual support so those who stay in the country they are now in kind of hibernation regime so to say so they cannot act properly but they at least try to keep the safe space for those who are who are against the war they even still continue doing some activities like for example they copied the formats that existed in the soviet union and what it was called kvartirnik kvartira is a, is a flat apartment so uh, people did for example all rock musicians were performing uh, in this format of kvartirniki in the soviet union times because they were uh, critical uh, towards regime they were not allowed to perform in in like uh, on a stage so they were playing for for their fans uh, in in apartments of friends and so on so that that was a very known format and now it, it, it's back again so the activists come and talk uh, discuss the war the political situation what they want to discuss in the in the format of meetings at apartments of friends without any of course uh, announcements anything and uh, people just invite each other personally so you only invite people who you trust and uh, yeah so social media play a significant role in that like social networks and and other like apps they're used for this networking so yeah people continue keeping it's a very very small and thin layer i would say of this activity compared to how it looked like a year ago two years ago but it still exists and uh yeah people are really trying to keep it uh yeah not to let it disappear totally 
So that was now back in, in April that you yeah. went back to um, St. Petersburg to visit again. Um, so what were your feelings or your expectations when you, when you got there? I didn't have expectations, actually. Uh, I had... I had a personal task and uh, a professional interest, I would say. So, uh, well, there was one expectation, actually. I, I expected that from inside, it looks not that terrible as from outside, which we all know about anything. Like when, yeah, when you're, I don't know, when you live in, in, in another city than your parents and they watch TV, then they call you sometime and say, what? What the hell? What terrible things going on in your city? It could be even in the same country. Well, if you live abroad, it's even worse. Yeah, so it's always... Uh, the the news are always exaggerating the situation. So uh, people who left the country and foreigners, obviously, watching TVs, watching news or listening to news, of course, know only part of the story that is delivered. And it's delivered for a particular reason with a goal, yeah, to frighten, to keep the awareness, to, to keep the particular attitude, whatever, yeah. So media are, are serving particular goals, yeah, definitely. So if you only know situation from the media, you are you have just part of the story. And uh, it is definitely very, very emotionally uh, kind of charged, so to say. Or, uh, so I, I had that guess that when I would come to, to Russia and from inside it would look more neutral, so to say, not that terrible in, in some sense, which, which was yeah partly true, as I said. So when you just you know land and you go into the city and you look around, you had this feel, this strange feeling that nothing has changed. It's all the same. As before, uh, so yeah, that that was expectation. But uh, the interest was I, I actually wanted to understand what what's going on, how how the the country and the city continues living, how what happened to that split of society, as I said, because yeah, a year ago it was like constant clashes with people, so people just stopped communicating to avoid clashes. Now it's all set. People understand who is where, who is who is who. So it's it's now functioning better, different because you don't communicate with many people you, with who you did. Now you just stop doing that. But at least now you know conflicts provoking your 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 constant emotional you know uh, instability, so to say. So people cannot live in that situation. So uh, yeah, and, and I was I was looking for to learn and understand how it, it works, the society as such and how the activist sector actually works. So, yeah, and, and discovered some things. And, uh, the, yeah, the personal thing was to uh, to come to the feeling that leaving the country is my own choice. Because before it was a very bad feeling of being kicked out, uh, which is not, no good. When, when you feel that somebody pushed you out of your lovely, you know, city, not country i wouldn't call that country my lovely but the city definitely i i did want to leave my city but i had to and this uh this feeling of a victim was not good so uh, personally it was very important to come uh to look at the situation and make a conscious decision 
uh, either to stay or come back soon or, or to leave, uh, but on your own decision. So it, it also worked, I think. We, we, we came, we, we looked around, we realized that 80% of our professional or personal uh, circles, milieu, just just left. So we, we realized we could not continue our, our life. I mean, when you leave the country, you always live, you continue living abroad with the dream of the city and the life that you left behind. So when you, when you uh, kind of regret about what you've lost, you always have an image of that dream, but, uh, and, and it hurts, especially if you liked that, that situation, that conditions that you had to live uh, behind. But then we came now and we realized uh, it's just a dream. We would not be able to, to uh, you know, continue living that way of life that we did before the February uh, 2022. The life now looks different. The city looks different. There are no people because most of our of your life is people, with who you work, with who you communicate, with who you hang out, with who you talk, share thoughts. None of that is possible now. It's just a few few colleagues, depressed relatives who don't care and that's why you actually cannot communicate with them uh properly it's very reduced and and all all the time very nervous way of communication with you all the time care about not crossing the, the particular border because you don't want to make conflict in the family and and this is it uh all, all the activities like like my activist part of my professional activity working with activism is not possible. Working for, for the state is absolutely unacceptable for me now. Working in the university is probably the only thing that would make sense because education still is valid. And you're, I mean, it's really needed to continue educating uh, people, educating young people. So that, that probably now the only way, type of activity that I would value and would probably come back for. Uh, to Russia, but it's also dangerous in a way because there were examples of students reporting to their teachers, uh, I mean about their teachers to to the police because yeah, because teachers and students didn't share the the opinion about the political situation and the war. So it's also kind of tricky, uh, tricky situation. And uh, yeah, I think what is needed is actually reconsidering the way I can act as a professional in Russian context uh, and come sooner or later, come back and act in this new way, which I should reinvent for, for myself. We, we shall have in, uh, in a couple of weeks or so a conversation with you and some, some other colleagues uh, also uh, expats from Russia um, talking about the complications around building transnational networks uh, including also um, people in Russia so we shall we, we shall have a, a more focused discussion on that but maybe could you give us some some ideas about how how do you find um, communicating with your colleagues who stayed behind in, in Russia? Do you get a good sense of what's going on in, through this discussion? Is, is there an open, 
open communication possible? Actually, I would say not. And that was one of the reasons why I wanted to come physically to Russia. I, I didn't feel safe, but I, th I still th thought that I had to do that uh, professionally in order to understand the real situation because, well, that's a methodological point. Uh, I mean, all, all social scientists know that just interviewing is not enough. There is lots of information about the, the, the situation that you don't get in a talk with a person. You have to feel it somehow, to be there, to behave, to observe, so on. So I wanted to come, but also I realized uh, in, the, in the, this past year that talking to people who stays within Russia is difficult. Uh, I remember my own experience before I left the country. I... I controlled very much the, my language. So when I talked, I didn't use some words or, or I was actually all the time thinking what situation I am and uh, didn't use some words that could uh, cause some bad consequences. So actually, when you talk to people, well, we, we made several tries of Zoom talks with those who stayed in Russia. And it was not uh, satisfying for me neither. I all the time had a feeling that people, uh, well, first the people who stays in Russia, they actually talk in a different way. They talk in a, we, we call that uh, a Zopus language, like referring to the, that's, I know the proper pronunciation, uh, the, the ancient Greek writer who was writing Aesop, Zopus, who was writing these like fairy tales actually describing their society and criticizing uh, the like the weaknesses and uh, the bad things in the society, but in a fairy tale form, not direct. Uh, so we were all trained very well in this language in the Soviet Union, where people used it a lot in, in, in also, also in culture, in, in arts, in writings, in, in, in cartoons, in many ways. So we, we know that we have that skill still me at, at least yeah, as a soviet generation representative so we people are learning it uh, those who don't have that skill they're learning it now how to talk about things without naming them and this is the way that the people who stays in russia talk to you when you're here and it's such a strange feeling and also a bad feeling of inequality because and i was actually even uh, kind of blamed for that a little by colleagues because at one it was even at a conference uh, like hybrid uh, format so some people stayed within Russia I was speaking in a zoom and I, I was using terms well I of course I also control my language and I didn't use like the uh, the the proper sometimes so I didn't speak in an aggressive way on really in a way that would cause some troubles for the conference I mean it could be closed next day it was supposed to last for three days if on the first talk I use you know those uh, forbidden formulas uh, then probably the conference or the section would be just closed next day and people staying in in Russia would be in trouble with the, with the police or intelligence service listening I mean or filtering the the, the, the internet for particular formulas yeah the words uh, and uh, so I didn't use many of them, but I still, the way I was speaking, uh, it kind of uh, triggered people staying inside Russia and they were complaining and blaming me, saying, you shouldn't do that because we stay in Russia and you're outside. And we felt it like 
expression of inequality because you were you felt you were allowed to speak in a way that we could not speak uh, and I said well okay well but what I mean yeah this is inequality but that's oh, yeah. a structural inequality in a way mm -hmm. on the one hand and on the second hand uh, uh, well I think that things these these thoughts these ideas had to be pronounced if they're not pronounced then we just play for regime we support it without keeping silence without not saying that we just support it and I understand and I respect that you cannot say that being inside Russia because you're in danger or risk but I'm not so I have the privilege but I'm using that privilege not for my case not for, for myself I'm using that privilege as I'm making an input in the in the development of the, the public debate so to say to exist uh, you cannot do that I can so you kind of delegate it to me and we, we we both make an input in its development so if, if I wouldn't do that yeah there would be no it would be equality but inequality in what in being suppressed so that's uh, just an example of how difficult yeah. the communication can be can be now and uh, unfortunately this feeling of of a little uh tension and uh exists between those who left and and those who stay and those who stay they kind of feel that those who left are guilty for living for kind of guilty for leaving those them those who stay behind uh being privileged, which is in many ways not true, because those who left, but those who left also feel they're privileged, because they at least could escape this this nightmare, uh, in one sense. But they've experienced lots of lots of troubles and still experience. Of course, being a migrant is not an easy thing, and in this situation, we all were almost in a situation of refugees or forced migrants, at least. People ran out. I mean, with, with hand baggage, for absolutely un, unpredictable time, uh, and they came with with no money, with no working credit cards because they are Russian credit cards were, were banned and blocked. So uh, for the people were came you know nowhere without any stable position yet. So it was all kind of uh, people have been establishing it during the year, but when they came, they came to nothing. Uh, so there were many, many, many technical troubles and the very decision of like leaving all your life behind without preparing any, any kind of further steps of your life, which is uh, just unpredictability in front of you. Uh, but people jumped in it. So it was kind of brave too. But all both sides felt that those who left were privileged. So it was kind of a, a bad taste to complain about your being in you know technical administrative troubles in germany uh to complain and and to you know to say to those who stayed look we are also not in in very good situations we, we kept also kept silence about that so we were trying to to support those who stay and invested lots of you know financial emotional efforts in in supporting them so this this inequality actually is is seen as inequality, I think, by both sides. And those who left are seen as privileged, those who stayed as unprivileged. Mm -hmm.
and it affects the communication in a way. Mm -hmm. I'm very struck by um, your your account of the dramatic turn of events uh, in in your personal life and in the life of your professional networks and, and circles and then also your statement that when you came back it looked like as if the city is operating as before as if nothing had happened and maybe adding on to this uh, i mean one 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 aspect that that also i'm, I'm wondering is about what effects does does the news or the accounts of fallen soldiers in the war fallen russian soldiers um, have in in public discourse in in media representations now what what effects does it have for 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 people still living there i mean What what about the threat of conscription uh, into the war, particularly uh, for men like you, maybe? Uh, well, yeah, that's uh, that's an issue. Well, uh, about the victims, I think uh, it's often underestimated. The the propaganda machine is underestimated often. I think it works properly in Russia now. It's just this is very efficient, unfortunately. So uh, it kind of it is included in the propaganda in a very well way, in a very functional way, because I mean it's quite obvious for for all you know scholars familiar with the nationalism studies, for example. I think the Benedict Anderson described this in Imagined Communities very well. The the idea of the the uh, unknown soldier. Uh, a non-soldier is, is a figure that is very much needed for construction of imagined community. It's just an abstract soldier representing the this, the community, and it's like bravest uh, features, so to say, parts. So that's the same with these victims. I mean, uh, the the propaganda builds like direct connection between the the memory of the Second World War and the current war in Ukraine. So the victims of this current war are presented exactly in the same way as the victims of the, the heroes who died uh, in the Second World War, for example. Or there were also the other wars in, in between. They always were wars, yeah, that, that Soviet Union and then, then Russia was kind of involved in more or less obvious ways. So there was Afghan war and there were also heroes, uh, like properly presented as, as heroes. Uh, and, and many of them are actually now are officers or instructors or volunteers at, at the Ukraine war. Uh, there were Chechnya war uh, with its own heroes uh, saving the, the country and, and the residents of the country from terrorists. So this narrative of, of heroes, it, it has always been existing. So these are just new heroes in this pantheon. Uh, so to say. So it, it works for the support of regime, obviously. Uh, new heroes, you can see these pictures everywhere. Some still alive, some dead, even more honor, honored. Uh, yeah, so it, it doesn't 
provoke any any negative effect as, as some would expect like i mean you, you would expect the negative effect in terms of the the human life values like human lives are sacrificed to the state but the propaganda is actually presenting it as confirming saying yes the personal life are, are sacrificed to the bigger community and the the bigger higher value than the personal life which is very in a way sociological idea yeah of of sacri- like the society has always been built around that yeah uh the society means more than than, than the, the the individual so it it works and uh yeah there is a movement of of mothers of of the soldiers of course this is a critical movement uh but as as far as i could understand even not all members of that movement are critical against the regime so i it I, in ideological terms so some just want to take care of their children uh so very pragmatic kind of or very natural idea without any ideology behind it uh i think very few even mothers involved in that uh kind of formulate their position as a political protest against uh making a war they rather i think to be efficient and their the goal is to save the lives of their children or to increase the quality of the conditions that their children are in in in, in the front line uh, so this is their main goal and uh, the rest is just serving it so to be efficient in reaching that goal they kind of sacrifice the political uh argumentation i think i've, I've read kind of yeah comments on that interviews with the representatives of this mother's movement saying yeah we, we want to save our children uh even if we are against the war we would not say that pro- publicly because if we say, say that then the the state uh, representatives wouldn't listen to us because they would say we are enemies who who listens to enemy we shouldn't look like enemies to to reach our main goal so to be efficient yeah so that's one thing uh yeah well the men are very much afraid and families are afraid but it's also treated more pragmatically uh nobody would well, not nobody some do uh some really do uh, like they're so ideologically brainwashed that they're ready to send their children to the war because they believe that this is a, a right war and uh well, i mean it's it could be even described and interpreted in the ancient terms of the honor like ancient greek uh terms of honor to be a citizen means to to have an honor and to sacrifice your life to a police was the highest honor you could get so that's pretty much the same attitude so some th- there are like scandals and clashes in in the families when uh when like young men left the countries uh, the country uh to avoid it uh the call up then the the mothers were blaming them for being betrayers of the country it really happened few examples but but they exist in most of cases if we compare the numbers yes there was a, like a huge flow of of young men uh in in the last uh 
fall yeah it was september i think uh when they were calling up people to to the war then uh yeah it was huge floor to to where you can go even without a passport like armenia or georgia which we were there the border was open so uh families were sending their their like children out of the country but it still it, it didn't turn into any political claim it, it was just very pragmatic decision to you just want to save your your boy from going to the front line this is it and actually i think but we we can actually better ask the, those colleagues living in georgia for example uh, but i th my feeling was that there was also well i i know it from from german experience because some also uh, left to to germany or other european countries at that time not in the spring but in the fall so there was kind of two waves of of uh, of uh, refuge from from russia since the war started and i think that there is a kind of uh, suspicion and tension also between these two waves because the first wave is considered political uh, the first wave of the spring was the wave of those who disagree with the situation and are not ready to leave and act and continue doing whatever in, under this new regime because the, the situation has changed. It's not the same regime as it was uh, in Russia before. So under this regi regime, they're not ready to leave. So that was political decision and they left. The second wave in the fall was just pragmatic wave of those who don't want to go to the... To, to, to the war well there was a little of or some not little that's not fair but there was some political statement behind it too uh people are saying well those who don't want to go to the the war they didn't want to participate in the war they didn't want to kill people what was wrong or strange about it it's obvious so we should support these people because what they do is also has some political implication yeah like refusing to kill other people or to participate in the war is it is political claim so to say that's i guess that's true but i really uh, wonder or even doubt about that many people who were just you know trying to escape it were really thinking in those political terms I think most of it was rather pragmatic driven. I mean, you want to live your life. You don't want to go to the army. Or definitely you don't want to kill people neither. But uh, I think it was, my guess, it was more pragmatic. But ironically, for example, in Georgia, the effect was the opposite from the, the perception from the local locals was the opposite. Because the first wave of the spring even though it was political but it was also a, a wave of as we just discussed more privileged so to say economically privileged uh, it was also prepared in georgia by the previous wave before the war the wave of the it specialists uh, because many companies were already kind of feeling that the situation is moving towards the war or any anyway, some bad kind of conflict, uh, and many companies started to moving out their personnel out of Russia, and Georgia was just a very attractive destination point for many reasons. That different story, but anyway, what what was uh, the perception in Georgia was that the first wave 
in spring. So IT people were also a big portion of it, actually. So many, because many companies said, okay, you're, we, are, we stop working with Russia, that's a part of sanctions. So if you want to continue working for our company, you leave the country. And we prepare a space for you where you can go. It could be Europe, could be Turkey, could be Caucasus for Russian citizens, easy, because it's Russian speaking and, and so on. So, uh, yeah, many people came. So they came, the IT specialists, well-paid people, or many people came from Moscow or St. Petersburg or other big cities uh, for political reasons, but still they were not the, the poorest people in the country. Because if you're poor, you cannot buy tickets. To, to fly because tickets were like they, they costed a lot by that time because there was a, a very high demand so yeah people did it and uh, they they looked wealthy for a local population or they, they were actually actually wealthier than the local population and so locals look at them in class terms and say what the f look at them this they call them refugees but they they came with them some came with good cars some came saving their salaries in IT companies, or some came uh, saving their jobs in Russia, like many architects did. They left the country for political slash pragmatic reasons, but they continue working in Russia. I know making uh, sketches or planning or projecting uh, some architectural stuff. So and they earn money. Uh, they earn the Moscow salaries, for example, which is several times higher than the average Tbilisi salary. Mm -hmm. So in class terms, they are hated because they also cause gentrification, obviously. And the second wave looked so really it was house, it was mess. I mean the 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 fall uh, wave of people running out of of the uh, the call up the the army. And they, it was just young people absolutely, you know, running away without anything prepared at all, without, without money, without food, without a place to stay, just, just terrible conditions. That really looked like refugee situation. Uh, so uh, the attitude of the, the Georgians, for example, towards these people was better because they, they looked like refugees needed help. Mm -hmm. While the first wave looked like wealthy, uh, rich yuppies uh, coming to gentrify Tbilisi. Yeah, so that's from two different perspectives. You interpret these two uh, situations differently. Yeah, we shall talk about this, uh, I guess, in the next uh, conversation. Um, let me... All right, then. Um, so moving now into the present. So how do you feel about your current situation as scholar? And uh, what are your plans for the future? Well, I'm I'm lucky and, and privileged because I, I actually have a stable position now in Berlin for at least two years, and some also some some plans in collaboration for the further a couple of years. Uh, but uh, in in terms of of topics, I would say well, research topic would be for me. I, I I think now I feel really feel a strong need to uh, to reconsider my previous activity and to become a bit more academic than practical because for many years I have been more involved in practical activity 
and uh, as, as many uh, as well as my other colleagues did not, you know, underestimated, so to say, the the significance of the reflexivity of the thought of, uh, of analysis um, of uh, philosophy, if you wish, uh, of of the activity, because this is how the urban uh, activity looked in Russia. Practice was much much forward. Uh, compared to theory. Uh, so I think the development of theory is actually needed. And uh, it's a difficult task for me of making my personal slash professional activity a research subject for me as a researcher. And it's, well, it, it's difficult to change the, the optics, so to say, to take this uh, point of view to look at yourself as a representative of uh, an, a community, a professional community that has been performing the particular activity. And now I'm trying to make it uh, a research topic, a subject of what, what this community have been doing, uh, what it has not been doing, what was missing, what was the focus and so on and so forth. So that's my research topic for now, actually. And I'm, I'm still learning to how to take this this position as a researcher and also it's difficult in terms of building a communication with your former colleagues who are well they are still colleagues yeah with who we have been practicing urbanism so to say and now uh yeah on the one hand I'm, these relations give me very well access very good access to the field so i can talk to most of those people who who are considered to be like real establishers of the the urbanism urbanist agenda in Russia uh, on the one hand but on the other hand we are colleagues and it's uh, difficult to transform this relation into a researcher expert position for example to make an expert interview with them is is kind of ridiculous for both of us so it's difficult methodological difficulty that I'm struggling with now but uh, there are also advantages, I think, in this in this position. And my belief is is that in the next years there will be a real need to to think of uh, to to kind of enrich uh, the urban studies, the Russian uh, urban studies, with intellectual thought, uh, with lots of analysis of the of the practice. So this is my my task for now. And I think that many, I can see that many people, who, especially those who left, they they share this point of view and they agree with my critical statements that I've already made several times about the this activity and the professional community. So there is also a little clash now. So those who stay, they still believe uh, what they do, what makes sense, what they did before also made sense. So they do not see like drastical a need for drastical change in their activity but those who left they rather share my point of view that there is a need for drastical change based on the on the reflexivity and analysis of our own practice and also i think that the issue of political is is now the issue uh, the relations between the urbanism and political it, it has always been underestimated, it almost never existed, and most of Russian, uh, post-Soviet Russian urbanism was positioning itself as out of politics. 
So like claiming we are out of politics, we are non-political, we, we do urban environment was kind of very, very common uh, position. And I think that was a part of the problem or, or a part of the professional uh, responsibility. So we as professionals could make our input in the development of political and we almost didn't. Not, not didn't at all, that's not true, we did, but to a much less degree or extent than, than we could if we did it consciously. So I think this is, for example, one of the things that has to be changed, the bringing uh, polit political, not politics, but political uh, to, to urbanism. Uh, so I think this this is the next several years of work of the professional communities, and in in practical sense, the activist work uh, it's it's now lots of things to be done uh, for establishing, re-establishing, and keeping uh, networks of of activists, keeping connections between those who left and those who stayed trying to understand the agenda, uh, the new agenda of those who stays in, in Russia, trying to help them in all possible ways. Uh, perhaps in the, in the future, as soon as it will be possible, also establishing the conditions kind, kind of... Uh, well, it really looks like, uh, it's, it, it can sound as a metaphor, but I really see it like two you know, pieces of fabric cut in two and now you have to sew them together mm. so with, with this with these travel trips there and back with activities events organized one in Russia one outside of Russia with the same people bringing them together talking about what is important for them all these kind of things are yeah, the activities aimed at keeping at keeping Russian civil society at least in in some way in some form uh, for for its further development. Just connecting this point to the previous one, perhaps developing it in the same way as we all did in the last twenty thirty years, is not the best way. I mean, it would be repeating the same mistake, so to say. Or not all of that was mistake. But definitely, it was not the best, not the proper way of developing civil society or public sphere in Russia, because all what we've built within 20 years has been demolished in two weeks. How how is it possible? It 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 should say something about the instability or in inconsistency or weakness of those structures built. So to to try, let's say, after Putin's regime. To try to rebuild them again in the same way doesn't seem the best option because there was something weak in that model. So again, we should do analysis also of this the civil society and public sphere development in in these kind of regimes, countries, because we see it's repeating. It's a little bit of history repeating, so it can repeat again, maybe in 20, 30 years, if we continue doing the same way. We probably should do something different also in this sphere. So the, the first task is to understand, to analyze and understand what exactly could be done different and, and then turning to practice mm -hmm. of doing it different. All right, Let, last, last open question to you. With respect of urban studies outside of Russia, 
Okay. So what kind of questions and challenges do you do you see that the the war and the situation of critical uh, scholars and activists in Russia and from Russia uh, raise? Well, one one of the things that was uh, uh, discussed a lot. Well, it's it's rather connected to Ukraine than to Russia because what war does to the cities, yeah, is is the demolition, and what's going on to the East Ukrainian cities now is terrible. But what can happen after can be as terrible as what's going on now. And this is uh, what what I mean is the, the leftist uh, critics of neoliberal uh, development of, of the cities, like very much like Harvey kind of uh, ideas and uh, critique. Well, what can happen to Ukrainian cities is just their, their total restoration in, in a radical neoliberal way and uh, the, the cities will belong to the the world financial institutions like world bank or monitor foundation and all these kind of institutions that will invest in restoration of the cities with uh with all the neoliberal consequences yeah so to say so even uh even for example as far as i know the situation in Ukraine with uh, ownership and, and uh, renting housing was similar to Russia so most of people were owners which prevented uh, from gentrification uh, I guess that if there, if nothing will be done against it then the situation in, in the new Ukraine is going to look like in GDR uh, like in, in East European countries with, uh, with terrible uh, gentrification privatization Private, yeah through privatizing but not uh, privatizing by the 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 people who live but bigger financial institutions yeah, so now owners are people who live there it used to be and now this the houses are destroyed new houses will be, will be built for somebody's money and this somebody will be an owner i guess so this this model i think has or yeah very bad consequences for for urban way of life in in uh, Ukraine, uh, I think that another issue is well. I guess that the war will provoke uh, another boom of migration refugee studies, uh, because uh, now, yeah, it's a different, it's a new wave, but a different type of of the the refugee waves, for example, from Ukraine and. Here, for example, in Germany, it already is, is discussed also in a very critical way uh, the attitude towards Ukrainian uh, refugees and, let's say, Syrian refugees, the way they, these two types of refugees are treated, basically being in the same situation of bombed uh, cities and, and uh, they, they had to leave, uh, but, but they are treated in a very different way, yeah, with, where Ukrainians look privileged, Syrians unprivileged. Uh, so the racism staying behind it, uh, or ethno-racism, ethno or anything. So all this kind of, anyway, that looks like a reproduction of particular type of inequality in in the urban development, also yeah, or in the social development. I think this this will be also uh, also an issue. Uh, what else? Yeah, well, well, as as I said, the issue of of political in urban studies. Uh, it's it's not Russian. Uh, issue at all. I mean, it's it's discussed by 
by French philosophers uh, a lot, for example, or Zizek, uh, the, the, the issue of, of post-political. Uh, but combination between the urban politics and the post-political is also discussed, but not that you know extent. But I think Russia is just good case provoking this debate. So look what can happen if you continue the same way we did. I mean, because this, this neoliberalism mixed with the populism leading altogether to the authoritarianism, obviously. Uh, I mean, Russia is just, uh, is just forward. But the same thing are going on in Europe. I mean, look at France and the elections. Look at Italy. Uh, look at Scandinavian countries. Uh, look at Berlin with the last elections and there are perhaps you already seen the infographics for the predictions for the next elections where well, I don't know I just guessed the got the the picture it looks terrible with with the growth of of uh, CDU and AfD and losing uh, positions of Delinke almost non-existing anymore green and SPD are going down so it's the same trend we are just forward so what what the rest of the world and Europe, first of all, can learn from from us is what you shouldn't do, or you shouldn't ignore, uh, shouldn't be too technological about the urban issues, first of all, like this uh, now this big debate about the next generation in in Berlin, yeah. So and complains that the, well the people stop traffic. Uh, the last generation. Yeah. Yeah, oh, the last generation. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, people who glue themselves to to the, the the asphalt to attract attention to the global warming and the big yeah, hot debate about this issue. So, again, yeah, one one side takes political uh, argument about that something should be done, and this political argument. But the the most of people, of course, say, well, I'm late again at my job because those stupid idiots glue them again to the asphalt and how much money that we've all lost because of calling to police that we have pay as taxpayers so this uh, yeah well this uh, clash between the the technological or technocratic uh, argumentation on the one hand and political on the one hand is a very uh, universal thing and I, I guess uh, the example of, of uh, situation in Russia just should uh, should probably help the, the rest of the world to be aware about this issue. Wow, thank you, Oleg. Um, yeah, I'm really amazed um, by your openness and uh, your reflexiveness and your you know, detailed uh, insights, like very concrete examples that uh, I, I really uh, wish uh, a lot of people w will hear to, to also understand this, this perspective that I think we hear far too little about. So, so thank you so much for taking your time. Thanks to you for listening. For more information, visit our website urbanpolitical.podigy.io. Please subscribe and follow us on Twitter.